once again it's time for me to open the doors of room 404. It is like, think of it like a warehouse or a museum full of all the things that time has attempted to forget. Uh, but the, the geeks, the techies, the nerds, the sysadmins, the PFYs of this world still fondly remember. Each week I invite a guest along into the room to try and find out what their favourite memories of old technology are and whether they can convince me that the world needs them to come back again. Joining me this week from netbooknews.com in his quest to bring out four items and put something from the modern world back in because it just really annoys him too much is Sasha Pallenberg. Hello, Sasha. Hey, Ewan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I think this might be the, the longest distance we've ever recorded a Room 404 over. I'm up in Edinburgh and you, of course, are not. Oh, the... Is it? You know, I th- I think that that must be like about ten thousand kilometers. Indeed, because you're over there in Taipei in Taiwan. Exactly, um, and it's it's a, it's a lovely, calmy night there. I take it. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, of course, it's dark outside because it's like nine p.m. right now, but we still have like nineteen degrees Celsius. So that's that's pretty okay for late March. Uh, and um, it's the middle of the afternoon here in Scotland, and it is dark. It is overcast. And it is raining. I mean, some cliches are cliches because they're just consistently true. Uh, Right, tell tell me a bit about Netbook News. When did that start? Well, um, I started Netbook News uh, about two and a half years ago. And um, we started with a German site uh, first because I'm obviously, uh, as you can tell by my accent, I'm German. And uh, then about one and a half years ago, we started netbooknews.com the English side, and uh, I've been already living in Taipei for half a year before we started the, the English side. And so it's all about mobile computing, netbooks, tablets, MIDs, um, whatever is mobile, whatever has something to do with computing, and that's what we're going to cover over there. I mean, the obvious question for somebody running a site like that is, Apple really are, are hugely dominant, or at least they appear that in the media with the iPad. How, how much of a how much space is left over for everybody else? Well, it's a very vibrant market right now, the tablet market. I, th- I, I still think that um, this bus will go on for another two years. Um, of course, Apple is the dominant player with some 90 to 95% of market share on the Western markets because, I mean, we just have no clue what's going on in China or India or in Africa or whatever. Um, but besides that, um, they will definitely lose our... our a bit of market share until the end of the year because just the this sheer amount of Android tablets coming to the market uh, right now is uh, uh, taking away lots of market share. And, you know, it, sooner or later, they will find themselves in the same position as on, on the smartphone market. That means our Android is going to be the superior mobile OS. There is no doubt about this because so many uh, manufacturers are going to use uh, our Android as their preferred operating system for a tablet. But I still believe that uh, the Apple iPad 2 is going to be, you know, um, the bestseller on the tablet market in 2011. It's a fantastic device. So there we go. Prediction there. Also, find it interesting, you don't have any tablets uh, or, or PDAs or smartphones in your four things that you want to bring back again. But there's some lovely stuff coming up here. No, I, I, I don't have a tablet in there at all. I think uh, we have to turn... Um, back the time a little bit 
more like uh, going back to the early 80s. And uh, that's where the whole geekness thing started for me. So there we go. Well, we got four items. So we're going to have a delightful 30 minutes or so going over them and deciding what gets to come out for the rest of the world to remember and what will stay in your memory and in the depths of room 404. Let's take the first item now. And uh, it's something that I think gamers of the world would rejoice if it managed to get us. Tell us about item number one. Well, item number one for me is just the one and only joystick, uh, especially for these guys that are growing up with game pads right now. I, I, I can still remember the, the time of the good old joystick. And my favorite joystick at that time was uh, the Competition Pro 5000 because uh, it was actually using micro switches. So it, it has a very solid build. And you just couldn't destroy it at all. Uh, as soon as you're looking it up on Google and you can see the first image, I think, you know, this will remember or remind a lot of people about this kind of synonym for a joystick from, from the 80s. And it was just a fantastic device. And at that time, I have to tell you, I couldn't even think of using a gamepad, right? Uh, it was all about joysticks, and the Competition Pro 5000 was the weapon of choice. I mean, it is. It is the. There are two sort of designs of joysticks, and and this is one of them. This is the two huge buttons in the top left and the top right corner, and the stick with right. with the ball that went on the top. So it was very, very similar to the the controls that you got in the arcade cabinets. Even nowadays, you know, when you look at sticks and arcade cabinets, they're they're the round ones, round ball on top big steel this was literally what the one of the first times you could bring an arcade style controller into your home for your home computer and it would feel the same absolutely i think i think the competition pro 5000 defined a whole category uh of of input devices because it is as as you already said it looks like an akari uh joystick and actually when when you're going uh, to a computer shop right now and you want to get one of these uh, are fancy Street Fighter uh, um, joystick platforms that you can buy like for three or four hundred dollars even. Right? It it all reminds me of this good old Competition Pro five thousand. And again, I actually I think I still have one somewhere in one of my boxes. As soon as, uh, when I moved over here to Taipei, I, you you weren't able to destroy this device at all. It is just so sustainable and such a uh, solid build, and especially with its micro-switches. And as soon as a, a, a micro-switch in there failed, actually you can just uh, get it out of uh, the case and get a new one in there. So um, it was just a fantastic device. I mean, it harks back so much to those days of it was easy to repair. Um, it had one, you know, as with everything in the 80s, there were two sort of competing viewpoints. There was the Competition Pro 5000, which was your straight gaming stick. And then you had my personal favorite, which was the Quick Shot 2, which, right. which was the one that looked like a, a flight controller with a stick with a hand grip and the button on the top and the button and the trigger button as well. I, I, yeah. was, I was a Quick Shot 2. Uh, not a competition pro man and i preferred the one that actually fitted into the whole hand uh, that way but i have a lot of respect for both of these control sticks and yeah i mean you you can understand why portable devices like the ds and and the the, the nintendo uh, the nintendo joy pads and the psp from playstation and and those had have flat buttons because they're portable but there's there's no excuse when you look at something like the ps3 and it's got its tiny little spinny analog controllers that you know, you can't get a big stick on there. 
Uh, well, absolutely. You know what? Even what, what was kind of interesting when I'm, I'm, I'm thinking uh, about this time and when we were looking at the different brands of joysticks. Basically, we only had a handful of joysticks that we were using. It was the good old uh, uh, default Atari joystick. Uh, it was the, um, the Competition Pro 5000, and we had the Quick Shot 1 and the Quick Shot 2, and I think that's about it. Indeed, I think there was one that tried to get in. It was something like the Stingray or something. You had to hold in your hand and had a little tiny stick at the top, um, which which it looked, looked just weird, uh, but it never really caught on. But the interesting thing about all of those joysticks was they were all interchangeable. They all had the same 9-pin D connector. and you, So you could put any joystick onto any yeah. computer. I mean, you could have them on a Spectrum, on a Commodore, on the Amstrad right. 464s, on your Atari consoles, and your Mega consoles. They all took this 9-pin connection. And you just don't get that nowadays. No, it was all about standards at that time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like, and everybody's fighting to get a standard. And I was like, you can't take an Xbox controller now and put it on a PS3. You could take a Spectrum Quickshot 2 and put it on a Commodore 64 Competition Pro 5000. And nothing would yeah. flinch. It would just work. Yeah, that, 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 that was the beauty of our not having too many options. <laughs> and the options that you did have, it didn't matter. They would all work with each other. Look, there's, the Competition Pro 5000 has so much going for it, both in, in standards, you know, 30 years down the line, if we could have that sort of compatibility across Nintendo, Xbox, and, and PlayStation 3, I think we would all be in a much happier place. There'd be much less wastage in the world as well. Uh, and, you know, you've, people have lost the art nowadays of big physical controllers, and I think that needs to come back. There's going to be a generation of people who, when they grow up and they're controlling, you know, steamrollers or wrecking cranes or big massive towers, they, they all have to use tiny, tiny joypads because they don't have, you know, the muscles in their hand that we had to develop to play these right. games. Um, so I, I think, you know, for the health of the nation, on top of all the other stuff, the Competition <laughs> Pro 5000 is easily getting out of room 404 in fact there's an entire crate over there and um, you can take them around to every single controller of all the current console manufacturers and ask for an adapter you know, you know what i'm not so sure about the health of the nation because after playing a couple of rounds of track and field and when i looked at the palm of my hand seeing all the blisters in there you know uh that it sometimes gave me a hard time for some special games, right? But still, I I, I believe, um, you know, I think there are even kind of uh, little consoles they're selling right now. We have like 20 or 30 C64, Commodore 64 games squeezed into a little bigger competition Pro 5000 lookalike joystick. So you can... Uh, hook it up to your TV set, and they're still using this design right now uh, as an uh, in-joystick console. Yeah, but I think what we need is we need the original out. We need the original that can plug oh, into any game. That's no problem. That is coming out. And if I've already said something's coming out, don't try and use Commodore 64 as an argument. It won't happen. I'm a Spectrum man. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go item one we're one for one so we're doing quite well in the opening but uh it is going to get a little bit tougher i think as we move on to item two what do we have coming out second you know what item two in terms of it, it it's more 
something about emotions and passions at that time. That was my first 300 baud uh, modem that I got. I think it was, uh, man, I think it was an Ericsson that I had at that time. And I mean, 300 baud, that's, that's 300 bit, right? And you could literally look at the screen as soon as you uh, got connected to BBS. Um, you could literally see the signs popping up on the screen. It, it was like in this War Games movie from the early 80s. And I got my first modem in 84. And I will never forget the first time I got online and I got connected to a different computer that was like three or 400 kilometers away. Uh, that, that was just an amazing feeling. I, could, I couldn't get it. Right, it, it it was just so fascinating to retrieve information uh, from the outer world into my computer and to get information from other computer geeks that were just setting up their own uh, mailboxes and BBS at that time and and, and putting uh, uh, in uh, information online, and that was absolutely amazing. I w- I will never forget these days. Um, and well, right now, like 300 bit, geez, ye. right now we have 100 Mbit, right? That's just uh, a different world. But at that time, it was just amazing. But what's interesting is having the 100 Mbit nowadays, you know, when you look at the size of a single web page coming down, you know, I can remember, you know, the, I mean, my first modem I would have to dig out, I think my first one was 9600, um, and it was through a little Scion computer. Um, it's great, total memory 512k. We can get an entire web browser in there. Uh, nowadays, that would barely bring in the future. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got a 100 megabit line, and you've got these huge web pages coming in, and it takes about 10, 15 seconds for, for it to load, depending on circumstances. Right. Now, I remember back then, you know, you were downloading a bulletin board of information or a single page or, or a gopher list or whatever, and it would take you 15 or 20 seconds. You know, for 30, right. for 30 years of, oh, we've made it faster, we've made it better, we've got more bandwidth, it's still taking us, a, you know, a third of a minute to get what we want. Nothing's actually changed. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Well, of course, the content changed somehow, right? We get, uh, yeah. we have more videos and we have more pictures. And, I mean, with a 300 baud modem, you had no pictures at all. Well, we had we had S- er, 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 ASCII graphics at that time, right? And uh, but but that's about it. Yeah, we I, couldn't I, do I, some real data transfer. It was all about it was all about signs, and it was all about um, digits, and um, it, it was just a different world. But still, it was about information, and it was about data, and somehow it was also about your imagination of what's behind there. And uh, I didn't even have a, a, a chat at that time. I can't even remember a chat. I think IRC wasn't, uh, wasn't available in the, in, in the mid-'80s. But uh, you had these very first blackboards or bulletin boards where you could leave messages on a BBS or on a mailbox. And um, that was already amazing. I mean, it is a lovely item, but I am just a, a bit wary of letting it out for a couple of reasons. The first one is, I think the experience we have nowadays is, is so similar to it. Um, the, you know, we're bringing something out for the rest of the world. Um, pushing us back to 300 baud modems, 
doesn't actually change the fabric of society that much. And yes, I can take your point on the imagination and bringing everything in. Um, but at the same time, you know, yes, a video report does add in a little bit extra uh, to yeah. a report. But I think, you know, the, the skill in the words and everything, we still have. And I think that, that there, it's it's tough one. I'm, I'm right on the edge because it is great to get back that original feeling that you had. But at the same time, it's not something we can really give the rest of the world. And they have, everybody has that moment themselves. And I'm not sure if we can bring out a generic one. I mean, even look, there's a generation uh, around right now that doesn't know a, a life without the internet. They've, They've never seen uh, the world where we are pretty much coming from, because we we've we've been born into this analog world, right? And we saw this shift and transition over to the digital world. And uh, so, I I think we have a different understanding of our, and and we can appreciate it in a different way. That we have right now, all this speed and, and and all this performance and this content-rich websites, but we can also appreciate our, uh, how how it was back then, and that it at the end of the day it was also about data and it was also about waiting, right? It's it's still worldwide waiting, www. And given that we ha- still have have all of that, I I think I'm going to leave. 300 board modems inside room 404 uh, okay. people people need to discover it themselves it's like it's like saying let's bring back world war Two. you know <laughs> it's like, because it was you know it was really good for the economy it got everybody working again it increased production across all of western europe um it helped out with the population problems that we were having you know it's it's like <laughs> there's a lot of downside as well to that argument and the downside to that is obvious yes there's a bit of de- upside to bringing back 300 bond monems but quite frankly i think they can just all go and read bruce sterling's the hacker crackdown instead to remind themselves uh, what that time was because there's a huge amount of downside um not least that you know you know when you're 14 years old it's really nice to have high quality images and video nowadays ascii just doesn't really help well true that right <laughs> so, it is, um, so uh... that one's going to stay in um so we're one for two um we're just at the halfway point of the four items you wanted to bring out and this one i think is going to bring a tear to the eye of many many people what do we have <laughs> for number three well, that's actually my second console that I got after the Pong game. And it's the Atari VCS 2600. Um, my first color video game that I could ha- hook up to a, a color TV. And I think my very first games or cartridge that I got were Pitfall and Galaga. So a shooter and this jump-and-run game, and I've been playing it for hours and hours and hours. And I'm still amazed if we, just just, just to remember you, that um, you could squeeze some four kilobytes of code into one of these cartridges. So to, to be so innovative and so smart to get these games into four kilobytes of code is just amazing to me. And um, I think the Atari 
just proved us that it's not about these super high quality HD graphics. It's about the game concept. And um, that's why I just love the Atari. Uh, the 2600 has a lot going for it. It really was the first system, especially in America, that brought computing and gaming into the into the home. And also the fact that it's a ga- essentially it's a games console. You, you couldn't program this at home like you could with things like the, the Atari 2, not the Atari 2, the, the Apple 2s, the Spectrums, Commodores, and Timexes, and, and right. the pets of all of this world. This was the game console, you know, and, and really you went from this, and then I think arguably the next thing up would be the Nintendo Entertainment System and and then the Sega Master Systems and so on. You know, there was this gap between sort of 1981 to 1987 where everybody got a programmable home computer um, and then it all went back to game consoles. Um, so this really is the leading edge. Okay, you had the Fairchild just before it, uh, but this was the one that captured the imagination. It's also, if memory serves, the only games console to have wood trim on it. Oh, absolutely. And that, I mean, just, looked... that just, you know, not only says <laughs> 1978, wow, 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 but it just screams class. You look at it nowadays and, not, you know, it looks like the 70s, but this tiny strip of wood at the front on the black plastic with the, the four, you know, big physical toggle switches, it just looks sexy. And for, for everything that the Nintendo Entertainment System did, it looked like the backside of a barn. Well, absolutely, and it, and it looked even expensive, like a piece of furniture, right? Uh, uh, when we looked, when we we're taking a look at all the consoles that came after the Atari VCS, they were just cheap plastic. This was like something that you would like to put on a cupboard or a shelf or whatever next to your TV set, and uh, it just looked great. Uh, let's be fair, uh, though, it has it a pretty did, good design. It did have a lot of cheap plastic in it as well. Oh yeah, that's true. But, you know, they, they, they try to overcome uh, it a little bit with this kind of wooden look, right? I think the, the other problem that, the, well, the other, the other issue the 2600 has is, yes, is it brought on a huge legion of game developers who were used to working in very tight, confined spaces, you know, 4K, incredibly slow processors. Let me just call it, I mean, the processor speed on this, I think, is like measured in hertz. Um, and, and even then, here we are, CPU, uh, 1.19 megahertz <laughs> i mean that's slow I, and and it got some incredibly fast games but it also led to some really bad games as well you know and this was the start oh. of of some just complete clunkers oh absolutely totally agree with you but some of the biggest games in video gaming history um were released on this atari i, I mean just think about pac-man Right. Oh yeah. You, Let's think about Pac-Man. Okay, you go first. <laughs> well, that that. Well, I, I I remember seeing it in a Cardi Hall, right? And and now you you could play the game with the same quality on a TV set back home. That was just amazing. I think the problem I have with Pac-Man, specifically on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred version of Pac-Man, was it was absolutely nothing like the arcade version and i also had um cbs programming not cbs tv and other cbs they programmed gobble a ghost for the spectrum okay. and they used the actual pac-man maze you know so you're at home playing what you played in the arcade pac-man on the atari 2600 was programmed quickly to cash in 
It looked nothing like the arcade version. It didn't play like the arcade version. The ghosts had random movement when, as any good geek knows, that the four ghosts have their own specific pattern that they follow in Pac-Man, which you can use to lead them on uh, and get them away. And it, you know, okay, sometimes the 2600 graphics looked good and sometimes they looked poor. But Pac-Man on the 2600, to me, was just a cold fish of disappointment. Well, well. To be honest, the pattern of the maze was the same as the uh, as the original one. Um, the walls looked a little bit different, but that's about it. Oh, no, I'm, I'm looking at the maze here. I, I've got the the, the Atari Twenty Six Hundred Pac Man maze in front of me, um, and you know, it takes the same influence in design, but it's not the same. For example, um, the the tunnels are at the top and bottom of the screen, whereas in the arcade version, they're on the left and right of the game field. There's there's four loops when you look down okay. the left-hand side column. Yeah. If you yeah, look on the actual exactly. Pac-Man major, it, it's one loop, tunnel, one loop. It's very, very similar. I will give you that. But that's because it's a maze. You know, when you actually get down <laughs> to real geek cred, you cannot claim that the mazes are the same. Let me... I'm 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 just actually looking it up. Right. Well, maybe I completely mix it up right now. Okay, you got me on this. I mean, yeah. You... Well, it's it's even more complex on the VCS. But the point is, it's different. It advertised itself as as Pac-Man. You know, the the arcade game. It, even the screenshots. I mean, look. Can you see the cover of the Pac-Man game? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's they've they've got the game grid that you would see in the Atari game, and the dots, which aren't dots, they're lines. Um, and then they've hand-drawn in the Pac-Man and the three ghosts behind him in the maze. It looks nothing like that on right. your television screen. The Atari 2600 might have been one of the biggest-selling consoles. It might have brought in the gaming revolution. But it brought in so many problems with game design that are still with us nowadays. Poor ports, false graphics, bad advertising, a general sense of disappointment, <laughs> you know. The, the, the 2600... It's like a Pandora's box. You know, if this were to come back out again, a lot of people would be incredibly happy. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of people would end up playing E.T. the Extraterrestrial. <laughs> and, and that was a bad one. <laughs> that was, I mean, basically, Iowa used to be the most hilliest place in America. They filled in all the canyons with unsold copies of E.T. the Extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600. <laughs> That's why Iowa is so flat now. And if you just dust the sand off the top, there's little black pieces of plastic there uh, moving the ground up. I'm not going to let the 2600 out for a couple of reasons. The first one is the ills that it portrays in the world. The, the second one is that it does scream 70s. And wood veneer is a great thing, but it's just doesn't fit in with the modern world it just would stand right. out like a sore thumb strangely enough the NES has actually aged a little bit better and would fit in with the modern ikea-ified world as opposed to this but the third reason the third reason is this is that it needs to be a geek or a tech head or a nerd that brings something out of room 404 and when you claimed that the mazes were the same that was it. I mean, that was like, oh dear, credibility's dropping quite heavily here. Um, <laughs> yes, you've admitted your mistake, which is a good thing, but it just goes to show how 
rose tinted the past can be and how rose tinted we look back on something like the 2600 so i think we need to deal with the realities of the world and the reality is the 2600 would just lead to too much pain if it escaped so yeah that's staying inside room 404 that's there you go happening um a little bit more you know you need to get another nerd badge before you can bring that one out again on that one, I think, Sasha. <laughs> um, but we have, we have one left of things to come out. You're one for three. Let's see if we're going to hit a 2,500 or a 25,000 or a 20, 25. I'm going the wrong way. Um, 0. 0.250 ratio. There we go. Uh, what do we have <laughs> for, for number four? At this rate, I'm going to have to stay in as well and read a dictionary. You know what? Number four hasn't anything to do with the device at all. But... Um... It's, it's, it's also part of my childhood and youth where I remember that we were always are heading over to the Netherlands where our people and um, cracker gangs um, that, were, that were hacking uh, game protection codes at that time were just setting up huge copy parties or just huge uh, conventions and gatherings of, of, of uh, computer geeks where we were exchanging new programs, new games, and whatnot. Because, I mean, at that time, we couldn't, we couldn't send uh, games over any kind of network. So you actually had to meet them uh, physically and in person and to talk about what's going on and to show your latest modding on your Commodore 64 or um, ZX Spectrum or Atari XL800 or whatnot. So uh, we always had a lot of fun to meet uh, with other guys and, you know, just to come together. That was that was pretty good. And this is something that I'm completely missing right now because right now we're just connected over the internet. We're meeting on Facebook. We're meeting on Skype. And every while and then we're meeting on, on, on some conventions. But that's about it. I, I like this idea. Um, and yes, it, it means it would destroy that sort of special nature of things like the web where, where you and I have bumped into each other on many occasions. Things like South by Southwest, where we recorded a show a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, it, and it would bring back not only the, the, the meaning IRL, as they would say, but it also would bring back a certain localness. I mean, the interesting thing is that the people that I'm, I'm interviewing for Room 404, they're all around the world. I mean, we talked earlier at the start that, that you're out in Taiwan. Steve was in Germany. Um, I'm going to speak to Melissa Pierce next week, who's based in chicago now to me all these people are, are my close friends but they're all around the world you know ask me where right. ask me where the nearest person in edinburgh is who who has a defender arcade cabinet um then apart from <laughs> looking behind me um where i could see mine oh not pretty like that full size uh you know i i would i wouldn't know where to look i would probably end up going looking right. online for, for a list i love the idea of just getting back in touch with what's local, what's real, and what's in the world. And, and I kind of have a fondness of those. I remember when I was at Edinburgh University, we used to have to cart three PCs um, from all our bedrooms in the student digs into the living room just so we could link them up so we could play Doom. <laughs> you know, you know, you're, now, nowadays, it's like, well, I'd, I'd love to play with somebody over in South Korea, but the latency is 0.3, and I, I, I'm only going to play if it's 0.25 or less. You know, in, in those right. days, you know, latency to us was a physical distance. It's like we've only got three and a half meters of cable. 
Yeah, that's as far apart as you can go. <laughs> no further. And right. and he, yeah, you know, built up your muscles, and you know, you had to hulk it through, and 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 you then had to try and work out how many plugs you had in the living room so everything could be plugged together and not blow the fuses and everything. I love the idea of this. Um, you know, and the same with it sharing. You know. Um, Here's the thing, though. You imagine there's so much problem with people BitTorrent sharing. Imagine if there were parties where people would just bring hard drives to and exchange right. their entire musical catalogue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would take on the order of, what, seven minutes? Shifting over, I mean, <laughs> shifting over the average 30 gig collection. Or, you know, right. everybody comes around with a terabyte external hard drive. Can you imagine... What what the BPI would do and the, and all the music collection agencies they would have a heart attack. <laughs> I like this idea. Well, totally. I mean, at that time, that that was I had like a five twenty five five point twenty five er inch floppy disk, and are you've been already the king of the castle if you had like uh, two floppy uh, uh, drives of uh, disk drives at that time, where where you could do an instant copy. Of of a, of a floppy and of a disk, right? With just a, a single disk drive, you know, it, it it turns you into becoming a DJ because you always had to uh, switch the the source drive to the target drive, uh, the disk. Sorry, and so yeah, it it, it took hours. Yeah, and to there was copy never a couple you, of games. You couldn't even just copy onto a hard drive and then back onto another floppy disk because no. They just weren't big enough. I think, if I remember rightly, my first hard drive on a PC, which was an XT, which was a little bit later, it was a twenty megabyte hard drive. You know, and I went for the extra storage option. Right. You know, and you're talking <laughs> that you know your good old five and a quarter inch discs. I think they went to seven twenty k. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the end you managed to get up to to one point two or one point four four, but those were on the three and a half. So those don't count. We're talking the you know when floppy disks actually were floppy. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 that was like. I think on the on the on the Commodore sixty four it was like a hundred sixty kilobyte at uh, one side and uh, well you, you you could you were able to make a double side uh, floppy out of it by just cutting off a little you know part of it on one side and so you could also write on the on the back side of the floppy disk so that that, that you had like three hundred twenty kilobytes and I was always so happy. When I could afford another box of ten new floppy uh, uh, floppy disks, right, and going to a copy party and getting like ten new games or ten new whatever things, so I'm really, really missing these parties and this culture of sharing at that time. Uh, it's completely gone. Yeah, I think we do need this back. This is a good one to come out of Room 404 because it applies even more in the modern world. I mean, the modern world nowadays is used to sharing. Let's make no bones about that. And I know I was kidding earlier about just you know, carting around a hard drive and just copying entire music collections. Um, but, you know, how many times do you go around to a friend's house um, and, and look through their DVD collection and go, not seen that, right. not seen that, not seen that, not seen that. Now, in the old <laughs> days, you'd borrow them. Nowadays, what you do is you do that while you've got your iPhone in your hand and you'd be doing to Amazon second hand going not got that one um one pound 27 plus postage and packing but next not got that i mean you don't even need to type it in you could just scan in the barcode that's just completely great i love the idea of, of as i said getting people around getting people who are in the local area to know each other building up mass support network and, and just slowly expanding out that way i think this is a fantastic idea um 
we wouldn't need to use the web to actually organize it. I think that's the only stumbling block. We'd have to put up a post <laughs> in Foursquare or something going, sharing party here, and a tip underneath <laughs> going, bring a hard drive and bring a USB cable. Um, it's just unfortunate that your hard drive, can't, you, know, you can't turn your hard drive over and double the storage space. So what it says, it's a one terabyte hard drive. Turn it upside down. It's a two terabyte hard drive. It doesn't work like that <laughs> nowadays, which is a shame. But... I like this. I think the idea of a copy party is quite definitely coming out of room 404. Fantastic. So there we go. We have four items were put up, and we've got two out. Two are still in there. That's a really good ratio, Sasha. Two for four. Yes. Um, And that means we now have the last thing. And as always, the last thing is not something to come out of room 404. It's something to go in to room 404. Something from the modern world that we don't need, that's just overhyped that's just completely and utterly excessive what i would point out is when we put something in it affects everybody in the world okay so we're not just getting rid of a squeaky door in your bedroom we are wiping something completely from existence and the question is do you have something suitable i would absolutely love to do that i just hate bluetooth headsets because i think that there is a a very thin line between a psychopath and someone using a Bluetooth headset. It is just insane to see people walking around 24-7 having this little Bluetooth headset in, in their ear and constantly waiting for receiving a call. And it's not happening. And when it's happening, and you can see them walking on the sidewalk and talking to an invisible person in front of them and you just have no clue what they are doing at all or when you're in a supermarket and someone is standing behind you and you're waiting uh, to go to the register to pay and someone is just talking into your ear because they're just having a conversation over their bluetooth headset and you, you actually don't know that they're talking on the phone i think it's absolutely ridiculous we have phones you know we'll just grab your phone get it on your ear and have a real phone call so that everyone can actually see that you're having a conversation on the phone uh, i i think bluetooth headsets are just not only annoying they're just ridiculous Bluetooth headsets have a lot going against them. I will give you that. Uh, one one example is all the rise of the Bluetooth stereo headset. And the idea is that you connect over Bluetooth to a device that's literally, you know, 18 inches away from the headset itself to, to listen to music over Bluetooth. It just completely destroys the audio experience. It adds another layer of compression. And what's really weird is sometimes it slows down and speeds up the music just a little bit to help with the you know, the sort of caching and the delayness. Now, that doesn't matter a huge amount in conversation, but trust me, when you're listening to Dark Side of the Moon and suddenly it speeds up, there's just, you know, your brain just goes, there is something wrong with the world. And, <laughs> you know, so Bluetooth stereo headsets for music, I've never used. It's really nice that Nokia's high-end solutions, uh, like the BT400 sets, they actually provide a cable connection as well. And it's just like, I'm using that. Um, apart from the fact that it uses less power, um, it means that you don't have any of the compression or slowdown in musical artifacts. The other one is, yeah, it's when you're in behind someone and they answer a call on their mobile on Bluetooth. 
if they're answering it on their hand set, you know that they're they're answering the hand and you can make allowances. If they just suddenly reach up, touch a bit of plastic in the yes. ear and start talking. Here's the big problem I have. They immediately slow down to half the speed that they were at before. Not on any conscious part. It's just that the brain is now going, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking and talking. I'm walking and talking. I'm walking and talking. <laughs> oh, there's Leo McGarry. I'm walking and talking. I'm walking and talking. And the amount of problems this causes on busy streets, especially in London, New York, Paris, Rome and such like, it just you just see people kind of bunching up and it's because the person in the front has got a Bluetooth headset on and they're taking a call and they don't have the spare brain capacity to keep walking at four miles an hour. <laughs> And that just annoys me as well. My only issue with this, and it's a very tiny one, and if it wasn't for this issue, I would already be locking the door with you, you know, and banging some bits of wood over it, okay. just to be sure. Just tell me how you would address this one, and that's car safety, because one of the things that Bluetooth, oh, totally, one of the things that Bluetooth does help with is it means people aren't looking at their, their mobile phone screens in their car; they can still yeah. use two hands to control a car or a train or, or an aircraft or anything. Um, actually, no. See, pilots don't use Bluetooth headsets; they use a cable uh, to to get into the range of the plane, and that's because of compression. So, what would you do about the issue of Bluetooth headsets uh, in cars? You could you you could put every call on every modern smartphone on speakers and it actually sounds very very good and the microphones are extraordinary right now so there is no need for a bluetooth headset in a car i was hoping you would say that (laughs) right get me some hammer nails this is never ever coming out again bluetooth headsets banished into room four done done yes and we shall lock them away and throw away the key, and they will stay there. They have some companions in there, actually. They have the 300-baud modem, um, which also has caching problems and problems putting a voice signal over, and the Atari 2600 as well. But coming out, I've got to say, it's a good haul, actually. Um, we've lost Bluetooth headsets, and instead the world receives the return of the Copy Party and the Competition yes. Pro 5000 joystick. That's pretty good. Uh, you're happy with that, then? Oh, absolutely. I think that's been a good week for people at Room 404. That's some really bad stuff still in there. Some really good stuff that's going out. Sasha, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time to join us here in the depths of culture. Thank you so much. Uh, and as always, you can find out more uh, on Sasha's uh, daily writings at netbooknews.com. And you're also on the uh, Twitter hurdle pile Facebook stuff, aren't you? Yes, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Sasha underscore P. And, of course, uh, Sasha Pallenberg uh, on Facebook. And we'll have links back to that on our website, which is Room 404. Room is a word, 404 as the numbers, dot thepodcastcorner.com. Get in touch with me, Ewan, at thepodcastcorner.com as well. If you want to be a guest, suggest a guest, or even suggest things that you yourself would like to see put in or put out. Maybe we can do a sort of reader's selection, listener's selection of things that they would want to bring out. For now, Sasha, thank you for coming along. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody out there, for listening. I'm Ewan Spence. We will be back next week uh, with another invited guest looking to bring back what the world has once forgotten and hoping to help the world forget one thing that people think it needs. But for now, goodbye.